0: I'm Rochelle Young.
1: And I'm Sam Tracy.
0: And you're listening to This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project by students and alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy.
1: An awesome organization working to end the war on drugs.
0: Every week on This Week in Drugs, We hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy.
1: And hopefully have some fun while we're at it.
0: We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights.
1: Instead of our normal format of news, then drug of the month, then discussion, this time we've got a special election episode where we'll be combining the news and discussion for one giant talk amongst the TWID team about the election results and what they mean for drug policy. We've also each got a call to action to help our listeners figure out how they could be most helpful for pushing reform forward post-election. But before that, we'll start off with the second installment of November's drug of the month. We will we'll be going over the science of dextromethorphan, also known as DXM, and the active ingredient in medicines like Robitussin. So, thanks for joining us for episode 70 of This Week in Drugs, and we hope you enjoy the show. Now it's time for the drug of the month, where we introduce and dive into the science, history, and recent trends in a different drug every month. For November, that drug is dextromethorphan, also known as DXM. As Rochelle explained last week, this drug is a common component of cough syrups like robitussin. and can also be used recreationally in what's known as robo-tripping. For this, the second installment, I'll be explaining the science of dextromethorphan, methods of administration, how long it stays in the body, and some of its positive and negative effects. DXM has the chemical formula C18H25NO and has the properties of a sedative, dissociative, and even a stimulant at various dosages. As Rochelle explained, dextromethorphan is a synthetic drug that in its pure form, like many other drugs, just looks like a white powder. While it's not sold this way in American stores, a quick google search does show that it can be purchased in powder form from Alibaba.com, which is basically the Chinese equivalent of Amazon. However, people in DXM forums have also told stories of receiving incorrectly labeled drugs from Chinese suppliers, so it is very important to do independent testing of any raw chemical you purchase online. And of course, like with caffeine or any other powdered form of a drug, careful measuring is a must. Offline, stores typically sell dextromethorphan as a major ingredient in cough medications, uh, namely in syrups, tablets, sprays, lozenges, or capsules. Again, and as Rochelle's personal story made clear last week, Those using DXM for medical purposes should also be careful not to consume too much and accidentally usher in some of the drug's more intense effects. Once inside your body, dextromethorphan is quickly absorbed by your gastrointestinal tract, where it enters the bloodstream and crosses the blood-brain barrier. Contrary to what a normal person might just assume, while it's used as a cough suppressant, DXM actually doesn't do anything to your lungs and instead works solely in your brain, raising your threshold for the amount of discomfort required to cough. Because of this, many cough-relieving medications will also include an expectorant like guaifenesin to actually reduce the blockages in your respiratory system. And similar to diamorphine being turned into morphine once in your body, DXM is actually a prodrug, meaning that the human body metabolizes it into another drug that has a bigger impact. For dextromethorphan, a lot of it is metabolized into dextro... For dextromethorphan, a lot of it is metabolized into dextrorphan. Which is about 10 times stronger, though some of the DXM sticks around and also has an effect. It's believed that the responsibility for the psychoactive effects is shared by these two similar but distinct drugs. As we said, the effects of dextromethorphan vary widely based on dosage. A typical medical dose is about 20 to 30 milligrams, with recommendations to take an additional dose if needed. At these levels, in addition to its cough suppressant properties, DXM can cause nausea, vomiting, drowsiness, sedation, and confusion, among other things. Some even report closed-eye hallucinations at this small dosage. Outside of medical use and into the realm of recreation and psychonauts, the DXM community talks about there being various plateaus of effects, with the idea being kind of like electrons around an atom, the effect is not a linear progression but instead has certain types of effects it can have that stay a- about the same until enough of it's been ingested to then bump it up to the next level or plateau. A typical threshold does for recreation is about 100 milligrams, though some do up to about 300 milligrams for what's considered the first plateau. In these amounts, DXM can cause euphoria and feelings of increased confidence and strength, and people often speak very fast, so behaving much more like a stimulant. The negatives of this can include insomnia and nausea. The next plateau begins at roughly 300 milligrams, though this varies from person to person based on body weight, body chemistry, and tolerance. At this level, for which people sometimes take 600mg or even more, dextromethorphan causes serious dissociation and many report vivid hallucinations and confusion, including lost or distorted sense of time. People who are a fan of robo-tripping almost always do this at home or in another very safe space, unlike hallucinogens like LSD for example, there doesn't seem to be much interest in consuming DXM at large social events or in public, but people instead treat it as more of an introspective and quiet activity. At this and higher doses, DXM has a range of side effects that include blackouts, the inability to focus visually, and serious confusion that can cause paranoia. In my research for this drug of the month segment, I even came across many reports of people consuming up to 1.5 or even 2 grams, so 2,000 milligrams, 100 times more than that medical dose of 20 milligrams, although they almost universally reported terrible experiences, and this dosage is certainly an outlier and not really recommended by anyone. Dextromethorphan does come with a small risk of overdose, but only in giant doses like the one I just described. In rats, the LD50 for DXM is 116 mg per kilogram, and in mice it's nearly double at 210 mg per kilogram. There's no set number for humans, but there are some reports of people dying from high doses of DXM alone. However, much more common is dying from a mix of DXM and other substances. One thing prospective recreational users should be aware of is that many over-the-counter formulations of cough syrup that have DXM as a main ingredient also contain acetaminophen, which can be very toxic at high doses and cause serious liver damage. So if someone is choosing to use DXM, they should not only calculate the dosage of the DXM, but everything in the formulation and make sure that they are well within the safety range. While it does certainly carry risks, DXM is not considered to be physically addictive. Active robo-trippers tend not to use it more than about once a month, but of course, like any drug, it can be psychologically addictive, particularly if someone is having other problems that they're only seeking to disassociate from. Because of this, it's wise to be mindful of set and setting, and only consume higher doses of DXM when in a positive state of mind, as people report it magnifying negative feelings and worries rather than alleviating them. One other serious risk from dextromethorphan is that sometimes people consume it unknowingly. According to the harm reduction organization DanceSafe, it's somewhat common for people seeking to purchase MDMA who then receive tablets of DXM instead, from dealers seeking to take advantage of people operating with limited knowledge. If used in an environment like a concert or festival, DXM can actually be quite dangerous, as it inhibits your body's ability to regulate its temperature even more so than MDMA, thus increasing your rate, risk of heart stroke. If used in an environment like a concert or festival, DXM can actually be quite dangerous as it inhibits your body's ability to regulate its temperature, increasing the re- risk of heat stroke. It's particularly dangerous when used along with MDMA, which could happen if, say, somebody consumes drugs from two sources, one of them being from an honest dealer while the other was not. In order to help mitigate this risk, the testing kits sold by DanceSafe are able to identify pills which contain dextromethorphan. So that's all for the science of DXM, one of a wide range of drugs used primarily as medicine, but also taken for other purposes as well. Next week, we'll be back with the history of DXM, when it was first created and how its use and legality have changed over time. now it's time for a roundtable discussion, where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. But this week, we've just brought ourselves for a special episode to reflect on the elections in the U.S., which had, of course, a huge impact on drug policy. Since that's far and away the biggest news from the last week, we're combining this with our news segment for one big extended discussion on that news. And we're here with a whole twid team, so both myself and Rochelle as usual, but along with two voices you don't hear quite as often, Tyler and Sarah. everybody
2: hey sam it's good to be here
3: hi everyone
0: thanks for having us all here sam
1: (laughs) (laughs) and so precedent um is obviously the, the biggest news from uh this past week um some of the most depressing news unfortunately um but i was thinking in order to make this just have the most sense and be able to talk about some of the the good stuff first um, that we can just save president for last, um, which obviously we should still be talking about it. But let's start off at least with talking about all of the drug policy ballot initiatives, which is, uh, of course, a lot more directly relevant to what we're doing. But so so first off, marijuana, one huge, um, incredibly excited about this. I, living Yay. in Massachusetts with. Uh, yeah, with. um. Finally being able to vote on legalization for my first time ever. Um, I personally moved out of D.C. What two months right before uh, that legalization initiative was voted on. Uh, So it was very empowering to finally be able to see that on my own ballot.
0: Um, Yeah, I think some of the I mean, it's very exciting. So we're talking about nine different ballot initiatives here. Uh, Five of them for full legalization, which we obviously have covered extensively over the past season, as well as four medical marijuana initiatives uh, that we haven't given as much attention to, but which were really the surprise winners of the night. So um, four out of the Mm -hmm. five legalization like adult use initiatives did pass. Um, Those are Massachusetts, as Sam said, Nevada, California, uh, which everyone had uh, their eye on and Maine as well. It looks like for now that Arizona did not pass, but I know you've got a little note here, Sarah. Do you want to tell us what's going on there?
3: Yeah, um, I guess definitely a hat tip to Tom Angel from Marijuana Majority here. Um, there's, I saw an article on marijuana.com that talks about how right now um, Prop 205 in Arizona is trailing um, by about... 80,000 votes, give or take a couple hundred. Um, But as of Thursday night, there were still more than 400,000 votes left to count, which this article says is nearly a fifth of the electorate. Um, And Scott Cecil, who I know is an avid listener of our podcast, also pointed out that something similar happened with the medical marijuana initiative in 2010 in Arizona. Um, I think the race was much tighter, it was trailing by like less than 10,000 votes, Um, but Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of precedent. Um, So I don't know. I guess the time will tell, Um, but it is encouraging to know that the the one loss that we have right now is still can't be definitively called.
0: Nice. So it's not over yet. We might still go five for five.
2: We should also uh, make note, too, since we're recording this on Friday the 11th, that news could change by the time this episode is out, um, and we'll post whatever correction we can in the blog post associated with the episode.
3: Yeah, Excellent and anyone who, anyone who wants to follow in real time um, should definitely check out Mm-hmm.
1: And our Facebook page where we'll be posting things from Marijuana.com.
3: <laughs> I guess I should promote. I should promote us. I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're our engagement but- director sarah this
4: is your job <laughs> <laughs> kidding but this
1: is so exciting too with arizona because i actually didn't even realize this because i think it had at least some news organizations had called it but <laughs> especially i mean if those are from particularly liberal areas i don't really know which ballots are still being counted if it's absentees more so or what but um Back in Arizona, when they passed their medical law, as you were saying, Sarah, it was one of the closest we've ever seen. I, I think the closest. I think they only ended up winning by a few thousand votes. And so in, in a certain sense, because of that, it's not surprising that Arizona lost uh, just because they medical was really uh, just barely made it. While in Massachusetts, for example, we did it with 63 percent of the vote. Uh, but that would be amazing if they are able to, to still pull this off. But e- even if not uh going eight for nine overall with these marijuana initiatives is pretty incredible
0: yeah i think the most interesting non-story of the night as far as marijuana goes was california um because everyone's been fretting Mm -hmm. so much that this huge state i mean everyone had their eye on california just because how how significant it is as the first ever medical marijuana state and as like the most populous state i think um Mm
4: -hmm.
0: and um you know we've heard a lot of stories about infighting uh, within the marijuana movement in California, particularly um, with growers in Northern California unhappy with some language. Um, and then they called California so early in the night. It was basically as soon as the polls were closed. <laughs> California was the first victory we heard about. um. Mm-hmm. So that's really, really, really great news for everyone who's been working so hard on the ground in California. But a, a couple of other initiatives were much closer. They're nail biters until the end. Um, mm-hmm. Maine didn't get called until the next day. And I know, Tyler, you were on the ground in Nevada helping students out um doing outreach and stuff like that. Uh in the couple days leading up to the elections, including on the elections, why? What was it like down there? Like, Did you have a sense of whether it was going to pass or not until um, like, before it was called?
2: It felt really good, Rochelle. Um, so we did two things, the, the two days, uh, not, the day before the election and election day. Um, so on Monday... We did a campus tour across all of the Las Vegas uh, school campuses uh, above a certain threshold of how many students there were there. And we talked to a lot of supporters, a handful of people who were undecided and like a sprinkling of folks that were against it. But for the most part, supporters, I mean, we were talking to students that were between the ages of 18 and 35 and, and specifically that too, because... Uh, Nevada has an interesting student population uh, that is like very non-traditional from what people expect on college campuses. Uh, So that day was pretty encouraging. Uh, We did a lot of lit drops. Uh, We had a great time. And uh, I think we talked to a lot of folks um, and we also helped people find their polling places. Um, The next day was even more exciting. So that was really great because it felt like we were laying down some groundwork and making sure that people had all the facts and uh, voting information they needed that day to go out the next day. But on Tuesday, we went to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, which is, I think, the largest campus there in Las Vegas. And we went to their, um, they have a free speech zone, and we could have a whole episode about the problems with that. Uh, <laughs> but it was nice beca- because if you wanted to be doing this work, um, and there were many groups doing this work, you had to be in one area. So we actually worked really closely with Next Gen Climate, uh, Vote Mob, and a couple other like smaller groups that were doing voter registration and directing people to the polls. Um, we weren't doing registration, obviously it was too close to the election, but they were getting people to the polls. Mm-hmm. And when we talked to people, I mean, you know, I must've talked to hundreds of people just on Tuesday and the majority of them and and more like the super majority of them, you know, 70 or 80% of them had already voted by like 11am. And most of them, when I said, you know, hey, like, do you know where your polling place is? Have you gotten to vote already? They'd see my shirt or my sign. They say, yeah, I already voted and I voted yes on two. And like, there were very few people who had not already voted or weren't planning on voting yes or hadn't voted on planning yes on two. So the feeling on that college campus uh, was really overwhelmingly positive. And that was what the campaign and a lot of the national groups kind of you know were banking on was this youth turnout of getting young people out to the polls. Um, and that's how we so uh, on SSDP staff side, we built our phone bank to specifically target 18 to 35 year old uh, people to register them to vote and to get them to vote um, because we weren't doing actual persuasion work, but we did know that, you know if a younger electorate turned out, uh, it was more likely than not that marijuana prohibition would end uh, so Nevada felt amazing and like to that end about the uh, you know 18 to 35 uh, voters so the main initiative passed by less than 3,000 votes and we made more than 3,000 oh, wow. connections from our call like from our phone bank like we talked oh, wow. our students mm-hmm. talked to over 3,000 main voters and the initiative passed by under 3,000 votes. So Mm -hmm. our students, in talking to these 18 to 35-year-old folks, helping them register, because in Maine, you can do same-day registration, um, and I think that's huge. It would be really interesting to see um, how many same-day registrations happened in Maine. Uh, leading up to this ele- like on, on election day um, but so we were actually our phone bank in Maine was not only get out the vote but it was register to vote because we told them look go to your polling place you can register to vote today and you can go vote uh, and that was yeah. really exciting and and look and getting these returns I mean obviously it's so exciting that we won almost all of these states uh, and that's like one of the one of the only things getting me through this very trying time uh, but mm-hmm. like It is also fantastic to see the way that, like, young people organizing makes an impact and, like, these sorts of strategies make an impact. And I think that, like, as folks look to preserving progressive uh, victories in the next four years and, like, how to keep folks safe, I think that it is instructive to to know that the organizing we work is a with the organizing work we do is effective uh and that we can duplicate that success in a lot of other ways uh in maybe a difficult four years uh upcoming
1: absolutely and i and i think it's super interesting too i mean you talk about the the high turnout you're seeing on campuses um, up here, when I, I was doing a lot of volunteering with Question 4 and Mass, and it was awesome because they actually even had, beyond just a phone banking tool, they had a texting tool, uh, which was really great for reaching out to, to younger people because, I mean, definitely for myself included, I ignore a lot of calls from uh, numbers I don't know, uh, but I'm at least going to look at a text. And so being able to reach out to other people that way was really great. And so many of them that we were checking into people to, to help them find their polling places. Uh, Massachusetts this was the first year we had early voting and so many of them had already taken advantage of it and we ended up winning by with 54% Um, and I'm curious too I mean this is gonna be something that I'm gonna have to just do some research into myself but I mean the big story nationally which of course we'll talk about when we start uh, discussing the presidential race is that um, I mean the the defining factor of this was low turnout Um, and I'm curious if all of these states with marijuana initiatives had you you know, a smaller drop or maybe even a bump in turnout because of all of the work, um, that this was one of the few things on the ballot across the country that say young people, for example, would be actually excited about.
2: Well, that was what, um, we talked about or you folks talked about on the last episode is that's exactly what they saw in Colorado. So I I think, Mm -hmm. uh, it's, I imagine it's, it's likely that that is the case in these States. Um, and yeah, uh, Anyways I'll, I'll let us get on from here and not hog the conversation too much.
0: Yeah, um, so I'm really interested in pivoting to the medical marijuana initiatives, which like I said, um, we hadn't given as much attention to um, on this show, which I feel kind of bad about now since all four of them did pass and that, and in some really exciting and unexpected states too. So of course, the four initiatives we're talking about are Florida, Montana, um, Arkansas and North Dakota and um, starting off with the two that are that I think most activists within our movement kind of assumed would not pass North Dakota and Ar- Arkansas. Um, no one really had their eyes on them because they were smaller states maybe we didn't have not only did we not have very robust polling about how much support those initiatives had in those states I don't know if we had any polling at all for North Dakota in particular. So. It was pretty much a stab in the dark for reformers, whether those two would pass. Um, Florida, of course, this is the second time that we've tried uh, to pass medical marijuana, for those who may uh, not remember, in 2014, basically almost the exact same initiative was ran uh, two years ago, and it did receive 58% support at the time, But in Florida, uh, for constitutional amendments, which this question was, it requires a 60% approval rate in order to pass. And we more than blew that away this year. Um, And that was the one one medical marijuana initiative that everyone did assume was going to win. Do we have any thoughts about Florida? It's okay if we don't. I I can just say the next one, too. Uh,
2: Another, I mean, like, yeah, that's just another amazing landslide victory. And I think... Um, is a place that demonstrates the massive public support for medical marijuana that we do talk about from time to time here. I mean, that is one of the, at at this point, it's almost a non-issue for Americans. Uh, And I think that that is, like, demonstrable in Florida, uh, which is a place that, like, Certainly, it's not necessarily a haven for progressive values, uh, but I think it shows the, the real mainstream appeal of medical marijuana. Uh, you know, it's that's, that's always been kind of like a tricky state for a lot of different issues and a lot of different demographics, but, like, um, yeah, it's, I, I think that Florida is, is a really amazing victory and, and something that the medical marijuana uh, policy folks uh, and community should be really uh, excited about for what's going to happen moving forward in other states.
0: Um, and then the final medical marijuana initiative that passed was in Montana. Um, I do think that's kind of more one of the more interesting ones, because Montana already passed medical marijuana for the first time in 2004. Um, but then in 2011, the legislature actually passed a bill that basically, it didn't completely repeal... The medical marijuana law but it limited it so much that it was basically unusable it included limits like dispensaries only ha- al- only being allowed to have three patients each
1: um so basically not being able to be dispensaries it was just like a, a caregiver system or like right i, I <laughs> can imagine with three customers that keeping a storefront <laughs> open is pretty difficult
0: yeah, absolutely. And even caregivers in other states are often allowed to serve more than three patients um, mm. each. So um, this was awesome for four medical marijuana patients in Montana who had previously had um, you know, access to their medicine and for that to be uh, completely limited in the past couple of years. Um, so this, this year's initiative basically repealed that bill and reinstated um, a functional medical marijuana system. Hopefully...
1: Yeah, we'll see, I suppose. But yeah, this is something that I'm super excited about, too. But I I feel like I have seen a few people, unfortunately, kind of um, usually in the more mainstream rather than, you know, drug policy news. um, But of saying, oh, now there's 29 medical marijuana states because these four voted and there's 25 before. And so it's important to clarify that, um, yeah, Montana was previously included in that in that 25. So now it is bringing it up to 28 um, and, and of these four medical initiatives, I mean, Florida is obviously, I think, arguably the biggest deal just because it's reaching the most number of people um, and being in, in such an important um, state nationally. Uh, but the other one uh, that I'm really interested in is uh, Arkansas, because um, the, the most interesting thing to me is who their governor is, um, is, is a Hutchinson. Um, who was a former head of the DEA? And now he's in a state uh, where they are breaking federal law uh, by allowing for medical marijuana. So I know, Sarah, you included um, some notes in here about what his reaction to this has been. Do you want to talk about that a bit?
2: Yeah.
3: Um, it, you know, I'm not super, I'm not more familiar with the issue than really reading a few articles about it. Um, but Hutchinson has been. Outspoken against, um, well, there were the two, we had two potential medical marijuana initiatives um, up until pretty recently, and Hutchinson was outspoken against both of them. Um, and now that it it passed, the the one that people were able to vote on um, did pass surprisingly. Uh, Hutchinson has asked it the the government, or at least um, made some public comments to reporters that there needs to be a federal um, federal clarification of what our medical marijuana policy is and what the federal stance is um, on medical marijuana policy. And I think in some ways, like you mentioned, Sam Hutch- Hutchinson is a former head of the DEA, so he is just really not comfortable with this in any way, shape, or form. And so I think he's trying to, in some ways, kind of pass the buck to the DEA um, and make mm-hmm. them sort of take, if he he doesn't want medical marijuana in his state, um, you know, he saw that the majority of his constituents do want it. And so he's trying to pass the buck to the DEA and say, well, tell me, tell them that we can't have this or clarify it, I guess. And so I think it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, but I do agree that it's significant that it passed just because um, of its location in the Bible Belt and in the, the Deep South, per se.
0: I am actually interested... And I don't know if any one anyone of us four has the answer to this right now, so it's kind of more of an, a rhetorical question, but I am interested why Arkansas has been a target for medical marijuana reform, um, not just this year, but in the past, too. I believe in, in 2012, they ran a medical marijuana initiative down there. Um, As well, that was supported by, uh, you know, national groups like the Marijuana Policy Project. And it came very close to passing. I think they had something like 48% support, but it didn't quite get it that year. And I'm just interested um, if you guys have any speculation or, you know, like why that state in the Deep South in particular made it prime, like a prime target to try and pass something like this.
1: Yeah, my understanding of it, or at least uh, kind of my educated guess, is that it's mostly just because there seemed to be some really good on-the-ground activists down there, um, and because I know at least um, there only ended up being one of these voted on, but as we talked about in the news in previous episodes, there actually were two competing initiatives, um, and the one that ended up winning actually you know, had to sue to get the other one taken off the ballot, and it was a huge battle between them. But it was... Uh, basically two grassroots organizations that were, were trying to get this through. Um, and then I think it was that MPP um, and other national groups were at first planning to work with them, um, but actually didn't end up working with either of them this cycle because uh, they weren't able to come together. And kind of the conventional wisdom was, was having two on the ballot would then make it impossible for either one to pass because people would be splitting their votes. Um, so only one ended up being on there, but it was so late in the game that I don't think any of those national groups got in. Uh, so I think it is just that Arkansas happens to be, be one of these uh, more conservative states that uh, there's some small or or maybe even pretty large uh, group of activists down there. But I haven't um, met any folks who are are leading those campaigns down there myself. So not 100 percent sure if that's exactly how it all went down or if there's a a much more complicated story to it. But I'd be interested and maybe we should uh, have them on the show to talk about it.
0: Yeah, it'll definitely it'll definitely be interesting to see, like, what tactics or strategies or um, you know, talking points worked in these more conservative states. As we, you know, expand expand the reach of medical marijuana beyond the first the first twenty five easy
1: <laughs> easy gets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so, we before about- we hop down. Yeah, I was going to say go before we hop down into uh, some of the other non-marijuana stuff, just to to wrap up in here, I know there were some also some local questions on the ballot. And, and Rochelle and Tyler, you folks being out in Colorado, I know that there's the Denver one that I think is still too close to call. I don't know if that's been updated, but what, still what's the situation it. down there?
2: They're, uh, they're anticipating a final word on Monday is what I'm hearing for the campaign. Uh, but the support in favor is growing with all the votes are counted. Uh, so you know it's trending upwards and I, I think people are feeling really optimistic about it. Uh, actually really optimistic about it. A lot of people are taking it for granted. Uh, I'm not yet, but um, because it's not it's not up by so many votes that there's no way that it, uh, can't win, uh, mm-hmm. but you know certainly it's, it's a very positive trend. It's looking good.
1: Awesome. And I know there was also a, a, a potential ban on the ballot in Pueblo, which I think is um, one of the counties nearby, and that one actually got shot down. Um, and I know, Sarah, you said there was also a couple of other ones outside of Colorado. What, what ended up happening with those?
3: I think The one most worth talking about uh, was a decriminalization initiative in Newark, Ohio. Um, The initiative would have decriminalized possession of up to 200 grams or less of marijuana. Um, But unfortunately, Newark officials today are saying that instead of um, that, they're just going to ignore it and they're going to charge all marijuana offenses under state law (laughs) instead of the city law Um, and the state law. Let's see. So Ohio state law carries a fine of one hundred and fifty dollars and no jail time for possession um, of less than 100 grams. But for possession of anywhere um, between 100 and 200 grams, a person can get up to 30 days in jail and a maximum fine of two hundred and fifty dollars. I think that's really disappointing. Uh, The voter, the initiative that would have decriminalized possession received 53 percent of the vote. which is a majority, uh, maybe not a a whopping majority, but a pretty clear one. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's really upsetting to see public officials just blatantly ignoring that um, and using their power to continue prosecuting people um, under state law.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is one of the things that's often, too bad about these sorts of initiatives where it is just on the local level and then the, the government's able to go around it so quickly. So it ends up being more symbolic. But I suppose if Maine is any, uh, any indication, I mean, they passed some, some local even legalization bills or, or initiatives uh, in the past and they just did it at the state level. So hopefully this will be a nice uh, jumping point for them to, to do more of a, a statewide initiative there. And then, then moving on down into some other uh, non-marijuana stuff, because, I mean, this was a huge night for marijuana or a huge week for marijuana, since some of them are still being counted, but uh, there are were actually a lot of other drug policy initiatives on the ballot. Uh, most interestingly, um, in Oklahoma, uh, there was a huge overhaul of the uh, alcohol sales policies, which we talked about in last week's news, which um, we actually hadn't really found out about until just a little bit before, but it was actually this pretty well-funded campaign. Walmart was one of the the main backers of it, which makes sense because the the main thing was being allowed to sell uh, refrigerated beer and wine um, inside of grocery stores and convenience stores rather than only in liquor stores and then um, also loosening up some stuff on the, the percentages that they're allowed to sell. Uh, but this did end up passing. Uh, I got 65%, um, which is a Very strong mandate. And it's so interesting because it's the the, the biggest uh, loosening in their laws since Prohibition ended, which was, as we talked about, uh, I think only in the 50s in, in Oklahoma. And so what do you folks think about, like, is this this is something the drug policy reform community I mean, it hasn't been talked about at all. I haven't seen any of like the big organizations talking about it. This isn't something grassroots activists were involved with. Is this something we should be? Is this a victory for drug policy reform, or is it just kind of a, a neutral thing? Is it a step backwards?
2: I think this is a victory. Uh, I, I, I shouldn't say it's a victory. I think this is a good thing. I think this is good regulation. I think that... Um, you know those other the the restrictions against these things are arbitrary and and not really necessarily effective Uh, and you know if this is something that if it passed with such approval like I'm glad that those voters are now being vindicated and like can consume purchasing consume alcohol the ways that they'd like to be doing so I think that this is a really interesting exercise in like I, I think there's good reason that drug policy reform hasn't sunk a lot of organizing effort into things like this because there are industry associations or industry actors like Walmart that have the ability to do that on their own, right? Like if we have – if we consider drug policy reform as a movement – you know, at its at its core, you know, as a grassroots movement, that means that what it really is is a network of volunteers. And, like, some paid organizers and some paid organizations, but, you know, with a relatively low budget. And, like, we ought not to sink our volunteer, our precious volunteer time into campaigns that can be well-funded by the industries that stand to gain. And I think that as marijuana reform moves forward, um, you know, certainly, like, certainly there are justice reasons to support those those reform efforts. But I think that drug policy reform is going to have to take a a really hard look at marijuana and say, all right, like, as industry associations form, like, how how much volunteer time do we have to direct to that uh, in order to uphold the values of drug policy reform versus allowing the industry to advocate for consumers when it becomes more of a consumer protection issue than like a social justice one? And like, what is the right balance between making sure, uh, you know, we don't ignore folks, right? I mean, there are still battles to be won uh, in marijuana policy, even in states that have adult use that are that are oriented towards criminal justice reform, uh, but maybe don't merit uh, us using volunteer efforts. Or or some things don't merit that and and some things do. And I I think we'll just have to start thinking about where to pick our battles um, now that like, maybe not now, but down the line, a few years down the line, when there's more money and trade groups that like can pay for the organizing that works for them to do regulatory changes like this. Um, So yeah, I I don't think that it is a victory of drug policy reform because we didn't really have much to do with it. I think it is a good thing. I I, like, I agree with this regulation, uh, but I also don't think that like drug policy reform need be overly concerned with sinking our volunteer time into something that Walmart can just basically buy away.
3: I think kind of, Piggybacking off of that, if I can, um, there's something that struck me in this article uh, that said that some of the smaller wine and spirit distributors um, were concerned that the the initiative would make, um, render them unable to compete in the marketplace because it gives manufacturers the right to choose one exclusive distributor in the state. Um, and that kind of jumped out at me as similar to some of the concerns we heard coming out of uh, like the Emerald Triangle in California. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think maybe, you know, I agree with a lot of what Tyler said about uh, why maybe the drug policy movement as a whole, isn't really invested in this, but I think that initiatives like this, Um, or maybe something we should be paying a little bit more attention to just in looking at how other things, you know, we talk about regulating marijuana like alcohol and this is a pretty concrete example of something that we can look at and figure out how things are going to evolve down the road.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with Sarah and um, Tyler to a certain extent. I don't think that um, regulations of uh, listed markets Um, should be a priority for the drug policy reform movement. But, you know, we're we're in the business or in the movement. We're not really in the business. We're in the Mm -hmm. movement to Mm -hmm. legalize a lot of drugs that are currently not legal. And I think it's very informative to see what happens to those industries once they become legal and to be aware that, you know, these corporations like Walmart aren't necessarily looking out for consumers For the most part. I mean, that's coming from someone who's skeptical of corporations like Sam, I'm sure you don't agree uh, entirely, (laughs) but um, like I just don't I I wouldn't I wouldn't want to say, well, marijuana is legal now. So that's up to the industry to make sure that they're protecting their users. I think that as drug policy reformers who have brought, um, you know, a substance to the legal market through our activism, it's our responsibility to ensure that people who are using those products and the people who are producing and selling those products remain um, c- connected to like, the ethical side of why we're doing this. Um, and I-, I know there's a lot of fear-mongering coming from prohibitionists like Kevin Sabet about big marijuana and big marijuana targeting you know, uh, vulnerable populations in the same way that we've seen like, tobacco companies or alcohol companies do so in the past. And I don't think that those arguments are invalid. I do think that, you know, he's setting up a boogeyman that, um, Mm -hmm. that shouldn't be as scary as he's making it out to be, but I don't think that all of his concerns are like complete garbage. Um, I do think it's the responsibility of the drug policy movement to make sure, um, you know, that some of the less user friendly, um, tactics that have been used in other industries before us don't get replicated in the industries that we help bring to light.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I I do totally agree that, I mean, Kevin Sabed and Project Sam blows up the the fear of big marijuana so much, kind of like claiming that it already exists and um, that it's going to be incredibly malicious. And so like the caricature of it that they've created, I think is totally bogus um, especially because uh, right now there's still most companies are still incredibly small and kind of in startup mode. There, are, there isn't really any any giants yet. there's some that are kind of bigger but it, it's nothing there's no like uh, you know Philip Morris or anything. Um, but uh, along with what Tyler was saying too, I think it is really cool of being able to or maybe this isn't exactly how you meant it Tyler, but it is nice to be like starting off these, um kind of self-perpetuating systems in which in contrast to what many of you know like the, the donors against legalization crowd uh w- was saying in california for example of oh this bill isn't perfect there's a lot of problems with it and so we're going to vote against it um in a certain way if you're able to to create a responsible industry they can then use that funding in order to loosen it in a, in a good way but of course As you were saying, Rochelle, a lot of the time it it could end up being that the business ends up going in a more protectionist way, say, trying to ban home grow after the fact or something in order to prevent people from from growing their own or something like that. And that would be an important thing to be fighting back against. But at least theoretically, and I think in practice a lot of the time, we can kind of work with the industry. And hopefully groups like NCIA will keep their very activist kind of – Bent and actually stay on that side rather than, of course, uh, letting the industry go in any direction more like alcohol or or tobacco.
0: Okay, so moving on to tobacco related measures, um, there were a couple uh, initiatives that uh, were the purpose of which were basically to raise taxes on tobacco. Um, We saw initiatives in California, Missouri, Colorado and North Dakota. Of those four, only one passed, which was in California. Um, We actually hadn't mentioned this initiative in past episodes, but we did spend some time last week talking about the Colorado Initiative, um, uh, Amendment 72, which would have raised taxes um, on a pack of cigarettes by uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. $1.75, basically. And the reason that was a big story last week was because the main opponents of... Uh, Amendment 72 were Atria, which is the company that owns Philip Morris, and they gave a historically large uh, campaign donation of, I believe it was $17 million. Uh, $17.4 million uh, went to the No on 72 campaign, and it looks like the sheer amount of money they spent Um, on advertising to get people to vote no on this measure succeeded i mean i i saw so many of these ads and none of which mentioned tobacco at all once um Mm. these are normally pretty common sense measures that help fund you know health programs and people who want to quit smoking um in the state um what were the
1: arguments in the ad if it was like i i I assume that it wasn't yeah pro-tobacco like you said but what, what was the kind of stuff they were saying
0: so they were saying that this would lock in. So what what Amendment Seventy Two does uh, would do is that they um, they made a breakdown of how all of the additional taxes collected would be used in various programs. And so no on Seventy Two argued that this was locking in state spending uh, without mentioning like mm-hmm. where that additional money was coming from. They made like they made like an argument that. Uh, Focused on Amendment Seventy Two, locking in the state budget for the next like ten years or whatever. Like you won't be able to change where this money is spent. This could lead to like w- government waste. Da da da. And never once mentioned tobacco or where yeah exactly like where that money was coming from. They made it sound like a fiscal measure basically.
1: Yeah. Interesting. So some pretty slim tactics, but people ended up buying it and voted it down. Unfortunately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, I mean, it I is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think that's just an interesting illustration of how we can't just always trust the licit industry to be looking out for consumer protection um, in mm-hmm. the future, you know, and especially for advocates like us who believe that not just marijuana should be legal, but that adults should be able to safely um, use whatever substance they choose to put into their own body once we have licit markets for this. I don't want to say like, like big MDMA is coming for you next, you know, <laughs>
1: like,
0: like these mm-hmm. are the kind of things we need to be conscientious of when, if, or when those th- types of industries become legal.
1: Yeah. And I think it is going to be honestly leading to probably a, a bit of a schism within the movement pretty soon as, I mean, at least even here in Massachusetts, our, our bill ended up, or our initiative ended up passing. It establishes an effective 12% tax rate uh, for marijuana sales to people over 21 And some in state government are already trying to advocate for raising that, saying that they think it's too low. Um, Most of the reformers are pushing back against that because we don't want them to, you know, feel like they can change anything because we just voted on it. And there's other ways to change it through the regulations and stuff. But I think there is going to be a time when it comes in the movement of whether, you know, is raising marijuana taxes kind of going to start being viewed as basically the same as an initiative raising tobacco taxes or, or, or even alcohol ones or where are people going to fall on that? So I think that that will become an issue of where there's going to be probably a lot of disagreement within the, uh, the movement. So, uh, might need to focus just more on the, the criminal justice side, uh, or just have people go their separate ways on that sense.
2: And, and I think that's kind of, uh, where my feelings come from about like these industry groups, right? Is that like, Those sorts of conversations, to me, like, certainly are important and have meaningful impacts on people's lives, but maybe ought not to be the centerpiece of drug policy reform discourse. And, you know, maybe that's something Mm -hmm. at at that point you get into these sort of like, really like in the weeds regulatory things that are going to be different for every place that like, maybe the movement as a whole doesn't need to come together on, because like, what we really ought to be doing is shifting our focus to the battles that are going to win, like real victories for improving people's lives, versus just tweaking the reality on the ground through like regulatory battles mm-hmm. that industry groups or consumer groups or whatever it needs to be, uh, you know that's that's where their place is.
0: Yeah, I like I like I like what you're what you're saying about that and that. Uh, clarifies for me your position before. It's like it's kind of not up to the reform movement to keep running back and micromanage all of these industries that we help create, um, but to keep our eye on the big picture of like any incarceration of people for, mm. for use of these substances. I guess I, 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 I can get on board with that Tyler. <laughs> mm-hmm. So speaking of criminal justice reforms, there are a couple measures we talked about um, on past episodes.
1: Do you want to lead us through them, Sam? Sure. Um, So in addition to uh, Oklahoma voting on that huge alcohol overhaul, they actually also had a a pretty huge initiative, um, pretty much on par with California's Prop 47, which we've uh, talked about on the show before. But effectively, um, it reduces many drug crimes from felonies to to misdemeanors, mostly uh, common possession while keeping, uh, I believe, distribution and production uh, as felonies. Um, It did the same thing um, for, I believe it raised the, the felony threshold for larceny. So basically when someone steals something, um, it has to be a lot more expensive now in order to, to be counted as a felony, which Prop 47 also did. Um, And the cool thing with this one, too, was that it wasn't just one initiative. It was actually a pair of them that was kind of campaigned for together um, because the second one was using some of the money saved by this in order to fund treatment instead, which I think is just such a cool idea. Um, I don't know why it was done as two separate initiatives there, if it was kind of a legal thing that initiatives are only allowed to do one specific thing at a time or or if it was kind of a, a campaign strategy to at least get one across the line or what, but it was, uh, both of these did end up passing with about uh, 56 to 58% support. Um, So Oklahoma, uh, I mean, typically, you know, a rather conservative, deep red state, Um, it was amazing for them to be uh, passing a huge criminal justice reform like this, um, where the model is basically California, which is, of course, uh, on the far left of things as far as states go.
0: Yeah, that was pretty exciting to see. Um, actually, that that those pair of initiatives didn't come to our attention until just last week. Also, um, mm-hmm. Sarah, you're the one who like raised the flag that this was happening, and Oklahoma is right next door to your home state, Nebraska. Uh, did you have any thoughts on this? Uh,
3: my first thought is that Oklahoma and Nebraska are not actually right next door to each other. Kansas is in between. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's what we get for inviting oh. a Canadian on the show. I-
3: uh, My second thought, um, looking at, so the campaign um, or the organization behind these initiatives um, is Oklahomans for Criminal Justice Reform. And they have some stats on their website talking about how Oklahoma's overall incarceration rate is the second highest in the United States and its incarceration rate for women is the highest in the country. Um, their prisons are overcrowded, sitting at 119 percent capacity, and 77 percent of Oklahomans personally, personally know someone who has been sent to jail, prison, or some other type of correctional facility. And so it looks to me like they were able to succeed by really making this personal um, to Oklahomans, and that's obviously reflected in, by, in the margin of their victory. Um, and this is incredibly encouraging, because um, Oklahoma might not be um, maybe as deep South as Arkansas, but it is absolutely conservative. And to see something like this pass um, by, what I am still kind of astounded by the margin. um, And that is something that we should all, a victory that everybody should uh, kind of savor after this election, because it, it truly is a victory. And it, I think its efforts can be replicated in a lot of other states um, where ballot initiatives are possible.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, between this and the medical marijuana win in Arkansas, I think it is a really good signal that you know, despite the the presidential and uh, congressional elections going pretty red, um, that it looks like our issues have really past the points of becoming bipartisan. I mean, um, even looking in Florida, Donald Trump ended up winning uh, that state, but medical marijuana passed with 70%, which means that there was a huge overlap there between uh, people voting Republican and people still voting for medical marijuana. And I mean, same thing, of course, in in Oklahoma and Arkansas, those being much more deeply red rather than swing states. Uh, But it is a, a really encouraging sign that um our issue we, we our movement has done such a good job at reaching across the aisle and bringing in people from from all ideologies and all over the country that we've kind of gotten past this being a left-right kind of issue okay yeah. do
0: you want to take us into the scariest part of our discussion which we've been avoiding
1: Yeah, um, we have the past been. 50
0: minutes <laughs>
4: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah so i mean we, Talking about the president or talking about the the U.S. elections, obviously, the biggest results and in many ways will have the the biggest impact. And certainly the most amount of attention is, of course, the presidential race. Um, If you haven't heard that Donald Trump won yet, sorry to break it to you. um, Donald Trump won. (laughs) And I mean, this was. This was a really difficult thing, um, just because, I mean, myself, I've, we've talked about the presidential election a ton on the show. People probably know where where each of us stand, or, or at least me and Rochelle. But I was in a deeply blue state, uh, focusing pretty much all of my attention on marijuana legalization. Um, didn't really pay as much attention to the presidential race, um, but ended up, you know, donated a little bit to Clinton. Just wanted to make sure that that, that campaign did Make it over, kind of took it for granted in certain ways, um, but that really put a damper on the question for uh, victory party. I mean, we ended up getting uh, the results in. We knew that we won, um, but then pretty shortly after the, the the results started coming in, and we saw how wrong a lot of the polling was. Um, a lot of people were kind of taking it back. I mean, I, I definitely know a lot of uh, people who had been predicting Trump for a lot longer so it wasn't quite as much of a shock to me but it definitely you know was a surprise um I was thinking that it was only a relatively small 25 or 30% chance of happening but things with that small of chance do happen um and this is going to be a pretty big deal and a, and a huge challenge for for the reform movement um but before Diving into that, just what, what what are each of you thinking?
3: I think we're all silent because a lot of what we're <laughs> thinking is profanities. Uh-huh.
1: Before this um, needed to be keeping this
3: I
4: just, radio I, clean. Yeah, Tyler asked us not to people swear, not to swear too much. Um,
2: <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I felt the same. I was at a viewing party in Las Vegas uh, and I stayed to hear the results on the Nevada Legalization Initiative, I congratulated people for five minutes, took a group picture with SSD peers, and then I left uh, because it was around that time that, like, you know, it was about maybe half an hour before Clinton conceded and it just wasn't looking good. And so I guess the first thing is that it was just so unfortunate to see, you know, I mean, I, the reason that I do drug policy reform work is specifically to fight against... Uh, like racism and sexism and like the oppression of people in this country and watching, uh, you know, watching the things I worked on succeed while, you know, not, not a majority of Americans, but a large section of America and the Electoral College votes uh, endorsed uh, a candidate that, that is specifically uh, like endorsed oppressing folks. Um, that mm-hmm. just really makes it feel, it made it feel like a hollow victory. Uh, although I am starting to get back, get, get back to a hopeful place. About I mean, you know, look, twenty five percent of the deportations that happen from the immigration agencies start with a marijuana arrest. Uh, so I think mm-hmm. that there's a lot of good that was done uh, because if we can stop, you know, if we can stop people from interacting with law enforcement, you know, in all these states, there's one less thing that a police officer can smell and then approach a person who is vulnerable to police violence. Uh, I think that's a really positive thing, and I, th- I think we're probably protecting a lot of folks with those. So I'm feeling hopeful. Um, I'm also worried about cabinet appointments, uh, aggressive attorney generals um, going after states. Uh, but I do think that with all these wins, uh, it'll be ho- it, when you have to go after a bunch of states versus just one or two, um, and you're specifically you know targeting those states' citizens and people who are benefiting from this. I think it's a harder fight for the federal government to win. So I'm not. Yeah, I, I'm hopeful that, like, these victories have really, like, galvanized our winning position on marijuana policy.
3: I, I echo what Tyler said about um, kind of cat, the the makeup of Trump's potential cabinet. Um, I think that is probably the focus of my concern. Um, I've seen... I don't know if any of y'all saw this or talked about this, but when Trump was picking his vice president, there were um, articles and rumors floating around that he had told his um, potential VP that they would be in charge of both domestic and foreign policy. Yes, Um,
0: that was one of my favorite moments (laughs) from the Trump campaign because it just illustrates what kind of president he was going to be. That came directly from, I think that was like Kasich's, Kasich's? Kasich? Mm-hmm. I still don't Kasich. know how to pronounce his name. Yeah, but mm-hmm. when they were trying to get him to be their VP, um, he yeah. was like, no, because this is what he told me on his phone call to me. Mm-hmm.
3: And I think, uh, you know, now that we know who that is, and it's Mike Pence, um, that's really scary in a lot of ways. Um, Mike Pence is pretty far right, very... Um... Mike and, Mike Pence and I don't share very many views, <laughs> to put it nicely. Um, mm-hmm. And I think... You know, just the reflection of who Trump has been surrounding himself with is, um, you know, there are, have been rumors that he's considering Sarah Palin, uh, for Secretary of the Interior, uh, Ben Carson for education. I, you know, I, I just I don't know that it, it bodes well for our movement. Um, and so I think we just have to I think it's hard to know um, exactly what's going to happen until we know who's going to be in charge of what within his administration, um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't start organizing now to be prepared.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, who his AG pick has been, the names floated around so far are not inspiring. Um, and nobody knows like how certain this is gonna be, of course, but Chris Christie, Rudy Giuliani, those names have been mentioned a lot um, as being potential next AGs of the United States. Um, certainly not going to see the type of, uh, memos coming out, um, that we saw under the Obama administration. Um, you know, I think, I think Tyler senses, right, that marijuana reform has gone way too far to put it back, to, to, to go back now. Um, Mm -hmm. the toothpaste is out of the tube, so to speak, but that doesn't mean that, um, things like the Cole memo, which give us protection, right now in all, all of these states to have robust regulated and licensed uh, marijuana industries um, can't be rewritten I mean even under the Obama's two terms we went back and forth on the guidance that DOJ was receiving so mm-hmm. that could certainly change I think one big thing that came out of our discussion with John hudak and Mike Lazuski last week was that the executive doesn't really have as much power as we think it does when it comes to these issues and that a lot of the reform that we were talking about last episode uh, would have been through Congress anyway, um, which is also not not that exciting considering mm-hmm. uh, the Republicans control both chambers now. Uh, you know, Everyone was hopeful that the Senate might flip to becoming a Democratic Senate and more friendly to criminal justice reform, more friendly to drug policy reform, but we're not mm-hmm. seeing that now. Um, The House is going to remain under Republican control as well. Um, And Mm. I don't know, it'll be it'll be interesting to see where our paths, our paths forward on drug policy reform will come from.
1: Yeah, because I mean, with this results, I mean, especially including Congress, it is basically... That our movement is going to be having to move from kind of being offensive on the federal level to kind of switching into a defensive mode, uh, defending our gains that we've been making in the, in the past many years uh, and making sure that we're able to, to both sustain those and then push forward maybe a lot more of reforms on the, the local and state level um, where there's going to be a lot more room for growth there. Um, I I do hold out some hope that, I mean, it is unfortunate of having a unified Republican government just because the Republican leadership has ended up essentially cooperating with uh, Donald Trump so much. Um, So I think that there is going to be a lot of um, negative uh, things to deal with, both inside and outside of drug policy. Uh, But I, I, I think we really have, at least on a lot of our issues medical marijuana for being the most prominent example i think we really have gotten past the point of it being a partisan issue anymore so i i think that with the alliance of uh the democrats who of course are still around just in the minority um, along with both never trump republicans and the ones who are on board now uh, um, hopefully at the very least we'll be able to to fight back with keeping medical marijuana um, respected in, in various states, if not even uh, possibly legalized at the federal level. Um, Trump's, of course, been all over the place on it, as he has with everything. Uh, but we'll, we'll end up seeing how that goes. Um, I, I do worry a bit with adult use marijuana. Only having eight states instead of 28 is is harder to defend. Um, and also things like federal funding for syringe exchange, I'm sure, are going to be, unfortunately, going right back out the window. And uh, so there, there are going to be a lot of losses. But I think... Um, what I've been hoping and kind of shifting myself to as I've dealt with the grieving process is just moving down um, from uh, being sad about it to just seeing, using it as inspiration. Um, and obviously, would have rather have had a, a friendly government, but at least some silver linings is that it's a lot easier to organize when you have a common enemy. And I think we'll have one in this administration. Um, and, and so we're going to be having to unite uh, around a lot of reforms and defending ourselves. Um, and hopefully this will be able to, to inspire a lot of activism, and maybe we'll have even a more thriving uh, reform movement in terms of membership and uh, excitement, even if um, some of our is going to be slow goings for a bit.
2: I also want to add, to. I mean, I think that marijuana wins are important not just for the people they protect. But also the people that we can start focusing on protecting and helping in the future. So, you know, Mm -hmm. in my work, I oversee the chapter work in Colorado, which has been an adult use legal state for a long time. And our chapters here get to focus their work on things that aren't marijuana, which means, you know, for many Mm -hmm. of them, psychedelic therapy, which is exceptionally important. It also means protecting people who inject drugs. Our chapters here overwhelmingly do work with the uh, Harm Reduction Action Center in Denver, uh, the Syringe Exchange in Boulder. Uh, they are really interested in criminal justice reform. They work with the Colorado Criminal Justice Reform Coalition, uh, prison abolition. Like, that's the sort of work that, you know, students who are always thinking forwardly, you know, they're always leading these sorts of movements. When you can win marijuana and, and take that as, you know, the, the central focal piece of out of the equation, and, and certainly there's still more work to be done in, in defending these wins. But when you can do uh, some, when you can remove that as the what's on the pedestal, people can look further, mm-hmm. and we can start to like talk about. Well, how does the drug war perpetuate like the mass deportations of undocumented people, right? Or like, how can we take a chunk out of the private prison industry, which is something that people are really worried about uh, with this incoming administration? Like, people can really focus on that because a lot of that, a lot of that energy isn't being sunk just into marijuana. And it's not to minimize the necessity of marijuana reform, but it does give us opportunities in all of those states where we have students working there to like focus on really pressing issues that are about to come up that intersect with drug policy, racial justice, immigration issues, um, you know, sexism, and like all these other things that we have to, that we're going to have to fight back against uh, for four years and for longer, obviously.
0: So that's a great segue into the last chunk of our discussion, which um, is the call to action. um, As you both know, obviously, we always wrap up our discussions with a call to action, since educating people is pretty useless if we're not also using that knowledge to improve our communities and make the world a better place. So um, I'm not sure, are, are we all doing calls to action, or are we just having Sarah and Tyler do one each?
1: I want to do one.
0: <laughs> okay, I want to do one too. All right, so Great. we're doing four calls to action today. Um, you want to take it away for us, Sam?
1: Sure. Uh, So my quick call to action is that, as I was saying, the presidential election results um, have inspired me a lot to get a lot more active in terms of the electoral side of things. For a little while, I was kind of uh, shifting over to giving up a bit on kind of party politics and being involved with candidates and really just deciding, hey, I'm going to be focusing on just drug policy reform. Uh, But seeing these results uh, has really made me realize that you, you can't really just do that. Um. These the who's in office is incredibly important as well, um, and so I'm kind of galvanized to be diving back into that sort of thing. Um, so my call to action is for our listeners to to get involved on the the candidate side of politics as well. I mean, the single issue stuff is incredibly important, but if you don't have good people in office who are going to be respecting those, um, then unfortunately a lot of those uh, wins are going to be for naught. So. Uh, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or, or outside of the, the major two parties, get involved, try to get better candidates through the primaries, support people, um, as we've seen throughout this campaign, even who's in like uh, the, the Democratic National Committee and, and other sorts of things within the party is incredibly important. Um, so learn about that sort of thing, get into the weeds a bit, and uh, try to exert some influence to have our political system be reflecting the, the will of the people a lot more.
0: Uh, Tyler.
2: So my call to action is to uh, stay vigilant and identify the problems. So if we're going into the future worried about what a Trump administration means for our culture and for our our country and world, look to the specific problems, find out what's actually happening, and then identify, how to solve that problem and then use, apply the tactics we've been using that we just proved are successful to solving that problem or stopping it in its tracks. Uh, Look for the specifics and find the specific solutions and do the work uh, just as we've always been doing, but uh, do it ever more vigilantly now.
3: And Uh, that's a, yeah, that was a pretty great segue. Um, I agree with Tyler that we need to stay vigilant and identify the problem. I think once you've identified uh, the problem and the problems that are the most pressing to you, donate money. So organizations who are going to continue fighting for those causes um, through the next four years and beyond. Donating time is great, um, but financial resources are a huge part of why lots of advocacy organizations are able to do the work that they do. And they need um, that support, financial support now more than
4: ever.
0: And so my call to action is not surprisingly going to piggyback off of a lot of what you guys said, but I'm going to take it one step further. Um, Run for office. If you believe strongly in, you know, drug policy reform, harm reduction, criminal justice reform, all of these issues, and you're not satisfied with the candidates you're seeing on your ballot every year, there's nothing stopping you from running for office. Um, I think that's probably one of the biggest takeaways I got from, and honestly, everyone here i'm a bernie supporter by now but like from bernie sanders political revolution is that he can't do this alone it's not about your presidential candidate once every four years you need to be looking at who are your candidates and who is coming up in the ranks within your state um even between between elections even between midterm elections even between like annual you know city council elections. Um, if you're not seeing a candidate that you support, maybe you're the candidate that the people need. Honestly, I've never, I've lived in the United States for 10 years. I've never considered becoming an American citizen because it feels kind of icky to me, but I looked at the American citizen web, citizenship website for the first time yesterday um, because there's no one, there's not enough people representing my perspective out here. So maybe um, that's something I need to, be, to get involved in. And um, I think Bernie taught us that a lot of down ballot um, elections matter just as much or more than the president once every four years. So consider running for public office.
1: Please run for office, Rochelle. I'll donate your campaign.
0: <laughs> we can talk about this further offline, but um, <laughs> um, I could definitely ease your help. <laughs> All right, so that takes us to the end of the episode. Um, Thank you, Sam, as always, for being here with me uh, during this roundtable discussion and news. And thank you, Sarah and Tyler, for joining us today.
3: Thank Thank you. you, guys.
1: Thanks for listening to episode 70 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Rochelle Young and me, Sam Tracy. The show is produced by Tyler Williams, and Sarah Merrigan is our engagement director. We'd also like to thank Tyler and Sarah once again for joining us for our special roundtable discussion. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or you can email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more information about the show, including links to our guests, news stories, and forecasts. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and like what you hear, please give us a rating and write a quick review. It helps us get to the top of the charts so other people can find us and start listening and learning, too. And finally, This Week in Drugs is an all-volunteer project. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support our work please check out our patreon page which is linked to on our website this allows you to commit to a small monthly donation to help defray the cost of our web hosting fees that's all for episode 70 of this week in drugs we hope you enjoyed the show and we'll see you next week our outro song is supernova by tiny blue ghost